The New Testament book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul from prison because of his ministries for Christ. This one short six-chapter book offers the believer rich and memorable Word of God for his or her identity, what it means to know Jesus, our goals for Christian character, behavior, joy in the Holy Spirit, Christian marriage and family, and how to fight your spiritual battles. The book of Ephesians is a book of power to transform our daily lives. We are beginning this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. We have been through the first four chapters of Ephesians, and as I've mentioned a couple of times, Ephesians is one of Paul's classic books that begins in the first part of the book, teaching us, helping us to get our attitude and our understanding straight. That's a very normal pattern for the Apostle Paul. That's what we call doctrine. The book starts with doctrine. What do we understand? What do we believe? After that doctrinal part is over, Paul will very often begin to talk to us about how we live, how we act, what we say, what our behaviors are. And contrary to contemporary attitudes and teachings, even those related to a lot of churches, there actually are behaviors that Jesus and the apostles defined as being Christian and non-Christian. There's actually yes behaviors and no behaviors. And one of the things about the message today, as I was looking at the first 17 verses of, e of Ephesians chapter 5, is I recognized how not politically correct the text is that we're looking at today. And when I realized that, I feel constrained to pause for a moment and tell you why we preach like we do. The kind of preaching that I'm doing is what's called, well, there are two different words for it. One is the word expository. Expository preaching basically means that you're starting with a text and I am making my best effort to expose what's in that text. Expository is preaching that exposes. And in this case, the exposition is what is the meaning of this text? What is it saying? I'm trying to understand it from a historical and a cultural viewpoint. I'm trying to help explain what it meant to the people who wrote it and to the first people who read it. Another word for this kind of preaching is exegetical preaching. That's a more complicated word. Exegesis means to lead out of a text what is there. You all have probably heard preachers that do the opposite thing called eisegesis, which is to try to force into a text what that person wants it to say when that's not really there. Exegesis is to take out what's there. Why do we preach like this? Well, I'll tell you, preachers are human beings. We are fallen. We have hobby horses that we love to ride, and we have other subjects that we would tend to avoid. Preachers are like that. And I can tell you that if I ever have a chance to preach about legalism or praise, there's actually a number of subjects like that that I get excited about preaching, and I would go for it three Sundays out of four every month. There are also passages, and I'll confess to you, humanly speaking, this might be a passage. The one I'm preaching today is one that, because it's more uncomfortable, 
I might hesitate to preach it. And so the discipline of going straight through Bible books the way we have forces me as the preacher to handle my preaching with the same proportion that the Bible actually does. Instead of hyper-focusing on areas that I love to hyper-focus on, and instead of avoiding areas that are more difficult for me to speak, it's a kind of discipline that I would apply the same proportion in my preaching that the Scripture does. We finished in Ephesians chapter 4 with Paul reminding us to be careful about our anger. He warned us that anger is one of those things that we can't let the sun go down on. We have to, we have to get it resolved. We have to get it fixed. We don't let the sun go down on our anger. And he reminds us immediately afterwards that when we are angry, and he actually brings the devil into it, the devil looks specifically for a place. The word place is very prominent in that verse. He is looking for us to give him a location that he can operate from. I think military people would call it a forward operating base, a fob. When we're angry, sometimes we can give the devil a fob from which to launch operations out in our lives. We have to be careful for that. Then he warns us how we should speak. And I told you that Ephesians 4.29 became a motto of a youth group I led a long time ago. The scripture is difficult to practice, I think. Ephesians 4.29 says, let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth. We would expect somebody to say that at church, right? Let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth. But the next phrase of it, I find even harder to follow, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may give grace to those who listen. I think about what would it be like if I was so careful with myself that I never spoke anything except what would give grace to those who listen. I think, wow, I might talk a lot less. Ephesians 4.29 is a strict verse. And then the very last verse of that chapter, Ephesians 4.32, reminded us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So Paul has given us some very strong words, and I want you to notice these are relationship words. Now, the reason I highlight this is that when I talk to Christians these days or I hear sermons or I listen to how people talk, it's almost as if people don't recognize that there is a connection between their behaviors and their faith, almost as if God doesn't really care about that. He's thumbs up on every single thing we do. There's an, an idea of Jesus that's like this, that he is weak, that he's happy, that he pats us on the head no matter how we act. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus actually calls us to recognize him as Lord. Lord means, yes, sir. Lord means, he's my boss. Lord means, he's calling the shots and I'm not. When he comes into chapter 5 then, the apostle carrying on this strand of behaviors that he's trying to correct, trying to get lined up with Jesus and the way Christians should live, he starts out chapter 5 with therefore, and you've heard me say whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is there for. 
It's a connection from the chapter that has gone before. He summarizes it this way, be imitators of God. It's like, thanks, Paul. Thanks for giving me an easy command, right? Be imitators of God. Look at His goodness. Look at His righteousness. Pattern your behaviors that way as beloved children. I'm going to say something that might be a little bit offensive when you first hear it. There is... There is, of course, this idea that all people are God's children. All people are loved by God. But there is also this very specific command that Jesus gives us, if you love me, you will do what I say. If you love me, you will obey my commands. There is also this very Jewish idea that children will demonstrate the lifestyle of their parents. Jesus once had an argument with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, where he says, you don't act like your father if you're claiming him to be God. You act like the one who is your real father, the devil. John chapter 8, by the way, is quite a mudslinging session. It's quite an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the issue of fathership and how we behave becomes a big thing. This chapter is picking up on that idea. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As we've seen in the book of Ephesians before, how we act in our life is summed up in the image of walking. Now, we're not talking about what you and I would normally describe as walking, that wonderful three-mile constitution that we might do like Harry Truman did in years past where we try to keep our own hearts ticking well and breathing fresh air. Walking in the book of Ephesians, and he's used this image over and over again, as my favorite teacher used to say, is our habit of life. How do we live as a habit? That's your walk. That's your Christian walk. And he says, walk in love. Make your habit of life to be love. Make your normal way of being to be love. Walk in love as Christ loved us. That's when I want to say, gracious sakes, Paul, you're full of easy commands today, aren't you? Love as Jesus loved. And in case we didn't get it, he emphasizes and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Wow. My daily life is to be lived as a sacrifice. What does that mean in this context, in all of these verses that come before and after? When somebody makes me angry, there's lots of things I could say, aren't there? And certainly we see TV shows and movies and we see public behavior where people say what they want to say. Jesus would call us to give that up, would call us to give up those ugly words, that ugly part that we would speak as a sacrifice. There are things that I might be tempted to. I might be tempted to lust. I might be tempted to violence. I might be tempted to greed. Those all might from time to time, moment to moment, mood to mood, be parts of my natural self. This is part of the sacrifice. I lay myself down. He lives instead of me. 
Therefore, children, holy and dearly loved, lay your bodies down as living sacrifices. This apostle will write in the beginning of Romans chapter 12. Do not conform any longer to the ways of this world. Now, beginning in verse 3, Paul starts to get very specific about a whole new category of behaviors. He has been talking with us about how we are with other people. How do we speak? How do we manage our anger? Beginning in verse 3, he starts the politically incorrect in our climate conversation. In my, in my translation, I have, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Isn't that an old-fashioned idea? That there are things that are actually proper and improper. What's the word saints mean? The word saints relates to the word holy. Holiness has to do with being owned by God. If I really am God's child, my behavior should look like it's coming from someone who is owned by God. This is not a matter of pride. It's not a matter ever to get cocky about. I'm never going to be as clean or as thoroughly dedicated as in my best moments I would like to be. But I do need to be aware that I no longer own myself. I was purchased from a path to destruction. And as that purchase, I am now owned by the Heavenly Father. I don't belong to me anymore. And so, in keeping with that, and I can, I can hear even people in some churches screaming as they hear these words, but this is, this is the early Christian practice of Jesus and the apostles. This is the fundamental teaching of what it means to be a Christian. Sexual immorality uncleanness or impurity, covetousness, are not supposed to be part of what we are. Those are supposed to be part of that parcel of things that we repent of, that we allow Jesus to kill on the cross. We allow him to raise us up new, not living like everybody else does in the world. Now, the word porneia is the Greek word in the text behind this term sexual immorality. If I were going to spell it for you with English letters, I would spell it P-O-R-N-E-I-A. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Porneia is the most generic word in the whole New Testament for sexual immorality. There is a word for adultery that's specific to adultery, but porneia also covers that. There is a specific word for homosexuality, both active and passive homosexuality, but porneia covers that. All of the various sorts of sexual behaviors that you and I know of that can be performed with another human being outside the covenant of male-female marriage, porneia covers it. And as soon as you see the word, you know that we have an English word that relates to it the word pornography. The root graphe at the end of pornography refers to things that are written or of photographs, either one. So pornography, properly speaking, is writing 
or photographs of pornea type behaviors. I know that there are some people within the sound of my voice who have even experienced the darker sides of this, like incest or childhood sexual abuse. This word covers those sorts of things too. Like I said, it is the most general word in the whole New Testament for the way that human beings sometimes color outside those lines. Sex is a powerful, powerful thing. And one of the things that's crazy about our culture is that our culture is absolutely obsessed with sex, but has no recognition, no responsibility, no perception whatsoever of the power of it, how it affects society, how it affects our individual lives, how it makes or breaks relationships. You know, even before I was a Christian, all the way back to my high school days, and then my earliest days in college, and I don't know, I'm not pretending like I've got ESP here, but I had the experience over and over again that I could tell exactly when a pair of my friends had begun having premarital sex together. I could tell. Because the emotions in the relationship would change. What used to be this open, happy, smiling between two people, suddenly it would change. And one member of the relationship would become more attached, more, we used to use words like sticking like a wet rag or something like that. They would become hyper-attached, and the other person is suddenly trying to make distance and stay away. I could see the moments those things began to happen. And I saw it before I was a Christian. Sex is an extremely powerful thing. It creates a foundation in a society. And so how it's done, God's way or not God's way, makes a big difference in how our society rolls. Impurity also refers to uncleanness. This word here for covetousness is actually a word to, that, that refers to our never feeling full. We never have enough. We always have to buy more this, more that before we can be happy. It is a consumer's word a word where we're never satisfied. I can't get no satisfaction. That's that's what this word is. It's materialism driving our lives. These things must not even be named among you as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. I'll never forget some of the times that I went from working in an office which is kind of heavily patrolled with political correctness to then being able to work alongside a field service team where nobody controls what is being said. And I instantly was exposed to some of the most earthy, in-your-face, darkest jokes that I believe I've ever heard. These things are not the things that are supposed to come from us in Jesus Christ. When we get to verse 5, After Paul tells us that these things are out of place and should be replaced with thanksgiving, verse 5 is one of those verses that modern churches, having left the word behind, have a very difficult time holding to anymore. 
This verse reminds me an awful lot of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Listen to how straightforward this is. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Isn't that interesting that this hunger for material things is called idolatry? Or an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Wow. That's just a black-white kind of statement. Paul is saying to us, and I, and I, want, you, I want to be clear here, we're talking about a walk. We're not talking about a stumble. We all stumble in all kinds of sin. But when our walk is characterized by porneia, when our walk is characterized by uncleanness, when our walk is characterized by materialism that can't ever be satisfied, that is not a sign of being saved. And that's a hard thing for the modern world to hear. I want to tell you, though, it was a hard thing for the world back then to hear when it was first written. This has never been easy for people to hear. People want to believe that because of what they believe, they're all right with God no matter how they act. That's what's popular in religion. And it has always been popular in religion. No one who is sexually immoral, impure, covetousness, that is an idolater. Such a person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I call your attention just to the fact that the kingdom is called the kingdom of Christ and God. And then Paul warns us, let no one deceive you with empty words. Wow, they must have been trying to deceive way back in here too. Folks want to speak to us that these things are a matter of a person's own choice. And whatever you believe is true is right. We experience in our lives the total relativism of truth or right or wrong, any of those things. We have entered the age, as I like to say, of Pontius Pilate when he comes back to Jesus and says, what is truth? As if there is no truth. Paul says that people will try to deceive us. We can be deceived with words that are popular, that are comfortable, and probably the most sacred word of my lifetime, tolerant. To deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. See, I told you this isn't an easy passage to preach. This is not one that I would normally, in my fallenness, wake up and say, wow, you know, one passage I need to preach is Ephesians 5, the first half. I love to preach from verse 18 on where it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. I love to preach from there. It's this first part that feels a little edgy to me and it's harder to preach. And yet, goodness sake, when we look at our land, when we look at the lives of people who have shipwrecked themselves around us, how much of what we're talking about here is the reason for the shipwreck? Let no one deceive you. Notice this Hebrew way of speaking in verse 6. Paul talks about children of righteousness, and he talks about children of disobedience. What is popular in our culture is to only talk about Jesus in terms of love. 
I'll tell you, in the last couple of years, the word obedience has been jumping out of the Scripture at me when I see it over and over and over again. One of the things that catches me by surprise is that I've heard people talk about the book of Romans as if it is a faith-only book. And what's interesting to me is that in chapter 1, Paul describes the obedience that comes from faith. And in chapter 16, the last chapter of the book, he closes on the obedience that comes from faith. If faith is real faith, it bows the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I know some of you, when you hear this verse, you will suddenly wonder if Paul is saying to you, well, what about all my worldly friends? Is, is Paul telling me then that I'm not supposed to have any worldly friends? Absolutely not. God forbid. What he is telling us, and I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but I have, and that is that when the old Mark is nailed to the cross and dies, and the new Mark is trying to walk as God would have Mark to walk, I notice that as my priorities have changed, my values have changed, that some of the attachments that I have had in the past start to slip, and I can't hold on to them. Members of my family, old friends, as their values are different from my values, as their pursuits become different from my pursuits, as the things that are important to me cease being the same as what is important to them, I can try to hold on to them. And yet I find that because we're moving in such different directions, the intimacy becomes less and less and less, and our conversations become more and more superficial. I've had some and continue to have great friendships in the world. And as they are open and as they are interested, I love to share Christ with them. But Paul is reminding us that there is a difference between a life dedicated to the light of Jesus Christ and a life that is comfortable and casual about disobedience with him. And that partnership with those relationships is only ever going to go so far. At one time, you two were darkness, that's true, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. You see how he is calling us to make our walk match our talk? You say you're children of light, look like children of light, act like children of light. And you know, one of the things I'm going to remind you of, and you're going to expect this coming from God's Word Community Church, is that you're not going to be able to do this on your own juice. That's why we keep reminding people here, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. You want to know what the will of God is in your life? Read your Bible. You know, want to know what it's like to have a personal relationship with Jesus? Read your Bible. I've had people say to me, I read my Bible once. I've read it all the way through, cover to cover. I say, good, read it again. Read it again and again. It reminds me of people that I've heard say, well, I told my wife I love her once. If I ever change my mind, I'll let her know. That's how we treat the Bible and our relationship with God. What we don't realize is that when we're praying, we're talking to Him. When do we ever listen? His word comes to us in the Scripture. If we want to hear Him converse back, 
We have to give him an opportunity to do that. Our guesswork, our emotional listening only is accurate so far. In our Old Testament Bible study this morning, which we have before our worship time, we were back in those scriptures in 1 Samuel where David had opportunity over and over again to kill King Saul. And it's a very interesting thing to study if you compare the attitudes of David's soldiers with modern Christians. Because David kept ending up in a situation where he could have killed wicked King Saul. And you know what his soldiers said? His soldiers said, look, Saul is right in front of you. Clearly, it's God's will for you to kill him. Why? Because the opportunity has been presented again. They had a religion based on the idea that if I have an opportunity right in front of me, it must be God's will to take it. Surely they could complain about Saul's wickedness. Surely they could complain how or, or emphasize how David is more righteous. So surely this must be God's will. But David refused every single time because he was not making up his religion based on emotions, impulses, and external circumstances. And I tell you, when I hear people preach, when I hear modern Christians talk, I can see that they're practicing this religion where they're guessing what is the will of God by how they feel or by what opportunities have repeated themselves in front of them. David said, no, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. God put him there. It's up to God to take him out. David's convictions were grounded in the word. And so he knew that even though the external circumstances can look like one thing, the will of God, which guides us in the word, can be very, very different. In fact, Hebrews 5.14 lets us know that we can't even reliably tell the difference between good and evil without being in God's word. And I think a lot of people today would have a hard time believing that. I think most Christian people or people that call themselves spiritual would think that telling good from evil is kind of a basic, easy thing. That's not what the apostles tell us. Hebrews 5.14 tells us that we need to be in this word to even to be able to tell the difference between good and evil. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all good and right and true. Wow, those are words that you don't hear much anymore. Goodness, righteousness, truthfulness. You know what? Those categories still exist for Christians. There is such a thing as what is good and what is not good. There is such a thing as what is righteous and what is not righteous. There is such a thing as what is true and what is false and what some of us might refer to, like Paul does in Romans chapter 1, as that which is anti-true. These categories still exist for us in Jesus Christ. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, brothers and sisters. The world is trying to teach you how to think. Romans 12, 2, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be renewed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's good and pleasing perfect will is. Try to discern. Verse 10, try to discern. I did not notice this expression until I was reading it in the Greek New Testament, and I was delighted to find one of my favorite New Testament words there. Test, 
discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word there which occurs in the original text is the word dokimadzo. I'll spell it for you because it's not an easy word. D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O. D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O. And you know what it refers to? It refers to a crucible. A crucible with a fire underneath it. You know what a crucible is? You Did you get to go to one of those high schools where in the class you put something in a ceramic bowl that you could heat very hot. You hold that bowl with tongs over a fire, and that bowl will get so hot that it'll actually begin to glow red. That bowl is called a crucible. And substances, a lot of substances that you can put in that bowl will change because of the heat that's put on it. If you were to say to me, Mark, look, I've got a piece of gold ore here and you handed me a piece of gold ore, one of the ways I could find out if it's really gold ore or not is I could stick it in a crucible and I could heat it till it glowed. You know what will happen if it's real gold ore? What will happen is that the dirt and the rock and the stone in that crucible will float up and will stick around the side of the crucible like a dirty bathtub ring. It'll stick way up on the crucible. The gold will settle out of the dirt and rock and turn into a pure puddle of 24-karat gold sitting in the bottom of that bowl. So I've done two things at once. Not only have I separated the gold from the dirt, but I have in fact proven that what you said to me was actually correct. This really was gold ore. There really was gold in that dirt. And so think about taking that image and applying it to verse this verse here, verse 10, where it says, test. People are going to tell you all kinds of things. They're going to tell you this is true. They're going to tell you that's the way we should act. They're going to tell you this is the attitude we should have. Put it in the crucible. Put the fire underneath it. Test it by the word of God. Check it out. And when you test it, you will prove whether the statement that was made to you is a true one or a false one or an anti-true one. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness. See that? The works of darkness are described as unfruitful. They don't go anywhere. People that wake up someday after living dark lives sometimes look at themselves and they say, what have I gained? What have I done? What have I done but damage myself? Those lives don't produce fruit until they're given to the Lord. Instead, expose those works. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed in the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. You've heard the statement, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Obviously, when we think about that verse, we think about the pure and righteous and good character of God. But one of the things that sometimes we don't think about is that God is light in him, there's no darkness at all, means that God is self-revealing. Christianity is not a religion where we have a whole bunch of hidden material that you can't get to till later. You know, some religions are like that. You sign up for the religion, and they give you the first little brochure, and you learn that stuff, but the whole rest of the religion is still back here in the file cabinet. You don't get to see that yet. 
The word for that is occult. That refers to hidden things, secret things. In Christianity, you get the whole deal up front. You get all the information that's available on the very first day. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is this little song about? Paul created this little verse, or maybe it was actually being sung in the churches at that time. It's actually a compilation of Old Testament references from the book of Isaiah. And what it tells us is that these two different lifestyles, the lifestyle of light, the lifestyle of darkness, the lifestyle of the children of obedience, the lifestyle of the children of disobedience, that this is actually the difference between being spiritually awake or being spiritually asleep or dead. That's what this song is about, that we need to wake up to the difference in the lifestyle. And I want you to know, I don't know, maybe this is just for me, but 30 years ago or so, this used to actually be a scripture song. I've heard Christians sing this, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ is going to shine on you. We used to sing that, shine on you, yes, shine on you, shine on you, shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ is going to shine on you. I love singing scripture. And that's one of the verses we used to sing. And what is it about? Waking up from this dark world. Waking up from the lifestyle that destroys. Waking up from the lifestyle of disobedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look carefully then how you walk. That word carefully isn't just there as an accident. The word in the Greek is the word akribos. A-K-R-I-B-O-S. A-K-R-I-B-O-S. Akribos. And it comes into English with our word accurately. Take a good measure. This is a word that Luke wrote when he wrote his gospel. He went back to eyewitnesses and he told his reader, Theophilus, that I have endeavored to write an akribos gospel for you. One where all the details are clear and in order. Have you ever seen somebody when they look at themselves that they don't take an accurate measure of themselves? They say things about themselves and they assert them, but everybody around them knows that that's not really true. They affirm something that's not really true. Maybe we've done this ourselves sometimes. Paul is saying, look at yourself with accurate eyes. Take a good measure. Pay real attention to what it is that you're doing not making excuses, and then not as unwise, but as wise. Let me remind you what wisdom is in the Bible. Sometimes you will hear popular definitions of wisdom, like intelligence may be how high you are on an IQ, but wisdom lets you know if you know how to use your smarts or not. That's one popular definition I've heard. And there's some merit to that. But when the Bible distinguishes between what is wisdom and what is foolishness, there's a different dimension. There's a moral dimension to it. In the book of James, James chapter 1, the half-brother of Jesus there says, if someone looks at the Word and then doesn't do what it says, it's like somebody looking at their face in a mirror and immediately going away and forgetting what they actually look like. Don't just hear the Word, but do what it says. In the book of Proverbs, in the writings of Solomon, elsewhere in the scripture where it talks about wisdom, wisdom is to know the word and to do it. To know the word and to do it. 
Foolishness is missing either of those things. Either I don't know the word or I've known the word, but I'm not doing what it says. Either one of those is called foolishness. In the Bible, wisdom is a moral thing. Foolishness is an immoral thing. When you read it, you'll understand those words better. Therefore, live, watch how you walk, look at it accurately, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time. And as we come here to the next to the last verse today, I want to remind you that in the old translation, this used to say, redeeming the time, buying it back. Time is getting away from us. Some of us are getting to an age where we can feel the time slipping away. When I look back, the Grim Reaper is closer in my rearview mirror than he was 20 or 30 years ago. My feet hurt now because I'm getting older, and I can tell he's gaining on me, and my body is showing that wear and tear that he brings. Redeeming the time. It may be the time that Jesus is coming back. I know for me... Whether he comes back in my lifetime or not, my time is getting shorter. All of our time is getting shorter. Redeem the time. Buy it back. Make sure your life means what you want it to mean. Make sure your colors before the Lord are clear. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Isn't that funny? You know, I think those of us who have lived for a while in the United States have had to adjust to this. Our country, once upon a time, was a a country that identified itself as a Christian nation. About the time that I was born, over 60% of the whole country went regularly to church. Over 60% of the whole country went regularly to church. We now live in a time where less than one out of four Americans go regularly to church. Less than one out of four. I don't think most people would refer to us as a Christian nation now. And some of us have identified our country almost with Christianity. And we expect that to be natural. We expect that to be the way that it is. But we have to understand that's that's abnormal. What's abnormal is for countries and lands and peoples and nations to reflect the world. To reflect the world. The times are evil. The times are frequently evil. But we still can have relationship with each other in Jesus Christ. We can still live as children of the light. We can still walk in the ways that God has told us to, and we still experience his blessing. You know, it's funny. No matter how much darkness there is, it can't extinguish light. Have you ever noticed that? One candle wick is enough to drive the darkness back. And no matter how dark your bedroom is, it's never so dark that it can put the candle out. I think that's cool. Understand, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As we close our sermons at GWCC, one of the things that we try to do is we try to find inside ourselves the big question. What is the big question when I stand before God in this text of Scripture, Ephesians 5, 1 through 17. We have mentioned that Christians in our land can have a reputation for meanness and judgmentalism. We've talked about those things in the past. We also 
Christians in the United States also have among a lot of non-church people, we end up with a reputation for not being any more pure, any more committed to our marriages, any more holy than any of the other people around us. It's just talk instead of walk. But when we live like that, we aren't living the way God has said. We are going one way with our mouths and another with our habits. So the big question today is whether we are fans of Jesus or whether he is actually Lord of our lives. A lot of people are out there clapping their hands. Word obedience is harder to find. Does Jesus have the right to direct us in love, in purity, in righteousness? Does God have a right, for example, to tell us what to do with our sex? That is why Christian living starts with repentance. It starts with changing bosses from our own minds to his. God bless you. God in heaven, let it be so among us. Amen.